I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I have developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. In today's reading, we continue our chronological study through the Gospels. We'll be looking at passages from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John today. First, Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 21. Mark chapter 2, verses 23 down through chapter 3, verse 19. Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 16. And the entirety of John chapter 5. This is the New King James Version of the podcast. King James Version is also available. So here is where we are in the chronology of Jesus' ministry. These are framed, these events, between the second and third Passover feast of Jesus' ministry. Jesus goes to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews, which is probably the Passover. We'll be talking about that in a few moments. Jesus then visits the pool of Bethesda for a healing. Then we find Jesus back up in Galilee, And Jesus at last finally formally appoints 12 of his disciples to be the apostles. So let's begin today with John chapter 5 and just look at one verse for a moment because this is likely the second Passover feast in the ministry of Jesus. John chapter 5 verse 1. After this there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. There's been considerable discussion among scholars regarding the feast referenced here in verse 1. Is that the Passover feast? Well, does it really matter? Well, it does matter if you want to track the length of Jesus' ministry. John only of the four gospel writers logs the occurrences of the Passover feast leading up to the last one when Jesus was crucified. The first is found in John chapter 2, verse 13. If we consider this feast here in chapter 5, verse 1, the second Passover feast... Then the third one is found in John chapter 6, verse 4, and finally the fourth and last Passover feast is that day when Jesus was crucified. Now that being the case, Jesus' ministry lasted three full years plus those months from the time he was baptized by John in Matthew chapter 3, Mark chapter 1, Luke chapter 3. That was leading up to the first Passover, which took place in John chapter 2, verse 13. So three and one-half years would seem to be a reliable assessment of the length of Jesus' ministry. Now, there's one more piece of evidence that adds validity to Jesus' ministry length at three to four years, and that's found in Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. In that passage, Jesus gives a reprieve to the fig tree, which seems to be analogous to his ministry to Israel. That period after the reprieve just happens to be three-plus years in that passage. If the feast in verse 1 is not the second Passover feast based upon what I believe is probably a declaration in Luke chapter 13 verses 1 through 9 of a three-plus year ministry, then this feast would be one of the other two major feasts in the same year, the Feast of Weeks, which is seven weeks after the Passover, or the Feast of Tabernacles, which is six months after the Passover. And that still, by the way, leaves a three-year-plus ministry scenario intact. Now, I realize if you're just listening right now, not reading along, that what I just talked about might be a little confusing, so let me boil it down to this. It appears that Jesus was baptized a few months before his first Passover, 
And there were four Passovers, and on the last Passover, Jesus was crucified, giving Jesus a ministry of about three and a half years. In John chapter 5, beginning with verse 2, Jesus demonstrates an awesome bedside manner here. Verse 2, Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity thirty-eight years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool whenever the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him, Who was cured? It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. The sick folks are gathered by the pool in Jerusalem. They're just waiting for the angel to stir up the water. First one in after the water was stirred got healed. This crippled man, sick man, the Greek word astheneo, meaning sick, weak, or impotent, he could never make it to the water before another because he was so weak. Jesus solves that problem in verse 8 when he says to him, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. Wow, awesome bedside manner. Well, that sets off some more fireworks. This takes place in Jerusalem during the time of one of those festivals, probably Passover, when a lot of Jews are present from everywhere practicing their best Judaistic stuff. When a Jewish bigwig sees the impotent, the sick man, carrying his bed around, never mind that he hasn't been able to do this for the last 38 years, the big issue becomes, hey, hey man, you can't be carrying your bed around like that on the Sabbath day. Now, the talk centers around who told the man he could break the law by carrying his bed on the Sabbath. Wow. First day out on his new wheels, and he gets ticketed by the religion police. This is a sad bunch of religionists, don't you agree? On first interrogation, the man, he doesn't know to identify Jesus as the healer. Later, after meeting with Jesus in the temple, the man is able to identify him, and these Jewish religionists go at it again in an attempt to entrap Jesus. Now, a couple points should be made regarding this episode with the Jewish leaders. First of all, there is no law within the law of Moses that would have forbidden the man from carrying his bed around on the Sabbath day. The Pharisees made that one up. It was part of their oral tradition where they had embellished the law of Moses. Secondly, notice in verses 11 and again in verse 15 how that this healed man seems to be something less than grateful to Jesus for his newly acquired ability to walk. When questioned about his infraction, he first blames he who made me well for his own violation of the Jews' law. 
Upon discovery of Jesus' identity, he then even makes a return trip back to the Jews to report that Jesus was the one responsible. Come to think of it, I've met Christians who seemed ungrateful to our Lord for the marvelous grace of God that has been extended to them through the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. It should also be noted that Jesus healed just the one man that day next to the pool of Bethesda. Now, that's significant because of the fact that there would have been a host of sick people next to that pool that day, but Jesus chose just one of them to heal. It's important to remember that while Jesus had power over physical sickness, his mission was to redeem mankind from spiritual sickness by his death on the cross. These miracles of healing were necessary to establish his identity as the prophesied Messiah. Jesus framed this mission near the beginning of his ministry in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 21. In other words, it was not the mission of Jesus to heal all the sick. It was the ministry of Jesus to redeem mankind from sin. The Jewish leaders, well, at this point, they just want Jesus dead. Beginning now, chapter 5, verse 16 of John. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Well, here's the deal. Nothing matters to these Jewish leaders except that their reputations and positions were being threatened by Jesus. Jesus tells them in verse 17, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Subsequently, they use this occasion of healing as another reason why Jesus needs to be dead. And we see that in chapter 5, verse 18. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So here's the reality on this. These Jewish leaders were familiar with the prophecy of the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Let's review that, shall we? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now that passage, one which they knew by the way, clearly establishes that the Messiah will be God on earth. The problem is that the Jewish leaders were corrupt and Jesus had identified them as such on more than one occasion. Now, beginning in John chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus answers these Jewish leaders. Verse 19. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. 
Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth." Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's, for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Well, Jesus walks a fine line when speaking to these Jewish leaders, just as he always did. There would come a time when Jesus would lay down his life as he had already prophesied back in John chapter 2 verses 19 to 21 and again back in John chapter 3 verse 14. However, that time would be chosen by Jesus, not these hypocrites. They're looking for Jesus to say something that is clearly indisputable evidence of blasphemy. You'll notice that Jesus often answers them by referring to himself in third person rather than first person as he does here when he refers to himself as the Son. It would have been much easier for the Jews to entrap Jesus if he had just used first person I rather than the Son, third person. He follows this pattern until he gets down to verse 24 when he says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death into life. They must have thought, ah, we got him now. Well, maybe not. Jesus uses the personal pronoun my, but that quotation standing alone doesn't give them the evidence they need to say that he called himself God. It's very clear to everyone, but in a court of law, that could be understood to mean only that he was a prophet. However, when we read that verse in the context with the whole discourse, it's obvious to those listening and to those of us reading as well, that Jesus is clearly saying that he is God in the flesh. He then goes back to third-person references down through verse 29. Jesus clearly identifies himself in verse 27 as God in the flesh when he says that he has the authority to execute judgment. But he again uses third-person references so that these words can't really be used as evidence of blasphemy by the Jews. As a matter of fact, Jesus refers to himself as the Son ten times between verses 19 and 27. Now let's take a closer look at this reference to the Son that Jesus repeatedly uses in the presence of these Jewish leaders. If you'll notice Daniel chapter 7 verse 13, here's what it says. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, 
he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Well, no question there. In that passage, the Son of Man is a reference to the Messiah. However, Ezekiel refers to himself as the Son of Man 93 times in his prophecy, while Jesus is referred to as the Son of God 28 times in the Gospel accounts. Jesus never uses it as a self-reference. So when your only interest is framing Jesus for blasphemy, one can see the nature of their frustration. Beginning with verse 30, it's all back to first-person references. But no statement he makes stands alone as sufficient court evidence for conviction on blasphemy charges. The Jews understand it that way, but it's unusable in court. Ah, maybe verse 36 will provide some sufficient evidence for blasphemy. That's where he says, But I have a greater witness than John's, for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me, that the Father has sent me. Well, I guess not. In court, that again could be taken as a reference to Jesus being a prophet. No blaspheming being a prophet. So notice closely in this section that Jesus fully acknowledges his identity as God in the flesh, but while saying so, gives them nothing to take to court because of the careful way he expresses it. The two resurrections Jesus mentions in verse 29 are not new concepts to these Jews. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, it says this, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now let's take a look at the collective resurrections that take place in Scripture. If you're looking at the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today, you can click on the links and get more detail, but let me just summarize them like this. Old Testament believers are are resurrected at the resurrection of Jesus, and that's in Matthew 27, 52, 53, and also in Ephesians 4, 8 through 10. Those saved since the resurrection of Jesus are resurrected themselves at the rapture, and that's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 to 58. Those saved between the rapture and the second coming of Christ, they're going to be resurrected at the end of the tribulation, seen in Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. And finally, those who have declined to trust God by faith through the ages are going to be resurrected in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15 for the white throne judgment. Now, in John chapter 5, beginning with verse 37, Jesus turns the table on these Jewish leaders, verse 37. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. But you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent, him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you might have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another, and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? 
Jesus has just finished telling these Jewish leaders all about himself in verses 19 to 36. Now it's time to identify these Jewish leaders for exactly who they are. Notice how very specific Jesus is here regarding their standing before God. He says in verse 37, You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. In verse 38, he says, You do not have his word abiding in you. In verses 39 and 40, he says, basically, you don't have eternal life. In verse 42, he says, you do not have the love of God in you. In verses 43 and 44, to summarize, he says, you prefer the honor of men rather than God. And then also in verses 45 to 47, he says, the very words of Moses condemn you. Well, that pretty much sums up the real position of these Jewish leaders before God. After hearing this, you know they got to be fumed, all that verbal abuse without a thing to take to court. But Jesus had issued a challenge to them in verses 39 and 40 when he says, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. Just as Isaiah had prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53, they rejected Jesus. The Old Testament prophets frequently prophesied the coming Messiah. Had these Jewish leaders carefully studied those prophecies, they would have recognized that Jesus was that one, that Messiah. But when did Moses prophesy concerning the Messiah? Well, the answer is Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 22. I've written an article entitled, Moses Prophesied the Messiah. Look it up by clicking on the link here or looking in the topic section of BibleTrack.org. Well, we move to the issue of corn in Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, Mark 2, verse 23 to 28, Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. This follows the chronology of the events. Matthew chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, not for those who were with him, but only for the priest? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priest and the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple, but if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now over to Mark's account in Mark chapter 2, verse 23. Now it happened that he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry, he and those with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat, except for the priest, and also gave some to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath." Now Luke's account over in Luke chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. 
Now it happened on the second Sabbath after the first that he went through the grain fields and his disciples plucked the heads of grain and ate them, rubbing them in their hands. And some of the Pharisees said to them, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? But Jesus answering them said, Have you not even read this, what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he went into the house of God and took and ate the showbread and also gave some to those with him, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat? And he said to them, The Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. So here we are, plucking corn out of the fields for personal consumption on the Sabbath day. No, no, said the Pharisees, and they demanded an explanation. So Jesus then refers them back to 1 Samuel chapter 21. That's when David and his men were fed by the high priest from the loaves of consecrated bread there in the tabernacle. In that passage, there was no indication whatsoever that God was at all displeased with that action. Furthermore, the Pharisees were overly embellishing the law of reaping on the Sabbath. The disciples weren't reaping. They were only taking advantage of the provisions of the law based upon a clear passage in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25. It says this, When you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. Now, reaping, well, that would have been using a sickle on the grain. And then we have Jesus using that son of man phrase again in verse 28 of Mark, Mark chapter 2, where he says, Therefore the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Incidentally, in the King James Version, the uh, grain there is rendered as corn. I probably should point out that this word corn for the Greek noun stochus, well, that might be a little confusing to those who know the history of our American corn. The corn in this passage this is the 17th century description in the King James Version of grain. The actual product in the fields would have been wheat or barley, not our American maize, also known as corn. Matthew records a second example by Jesus to these Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12, verses 5 and 6, the fact that the Mosaic law assigns priests in the tabernacle and temple assigns them duties that they are required to perform on the Sabbath, and we see that in Numbers chapter 28. Both of these examples are designed to show the Pharisees that their oral additions to the law of Moses were not capturing its essence. These Pharisees were missing the mark. Jesus then quotes from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. He does so in Matthew chapter 12, 7, where he says, "...but if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice," you would not have condemned the guiltless. Hosea prophesied during the time when the northern kingdom fell. His point then, and that of Jesus on this occasion, is that they had missed the real point of the law of Moses. Keeping the law in its deviated form, well, that had become the object over an actual relationship with God. Incidentally, Jesus had quoted Hosea chapter 6, verse 6 on a previous occasion, and that was back in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13. Now let's read of another conflict with the Jewish leadership when men are treated worse than animals. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 9 through 14, Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and Luke chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. Mark 12, 9. Now when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue, and behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath that they might accuse him? 
Then he said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. Now Mark's account, Mark chapter 3, verse 1. And he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, Step forward, then he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Now over to Luke chapter 6, verse 6. Now it happened on another Sabbath also that he entered the synagogue and taught, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. So the scribes and Pharisees watched him closely whether he would heal on the Sabbath that they might find an accusation against him. But he knew their thoughts and said to the man who had the withered hand, Arise and stand here. And he rose and stood. Then Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy? And when he had looked around at them all, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. But they were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. These Jewish leaders, here consisting of scribes, Pharisees, and probably a few Sadducees sprinkled in, they anticipate that Jesus is about to heal a man on the Sabbath day. They're just licking their chops. Another chance to perhaps collect enough evidence on Jesus to prosecute him for blasphemy before the Roman courts. Jesus knows what's on their minds, but he heals the man's withered hand anyway. Jesus points out that none of them would object to rescuing an animal on the Sabbath, so why not a human? Well, from their perspective, who cares about consistency? Certainly not these highly esteemed religious leaders. They immediately seek out the Herodians to tell what has just taken place. These Herodians formed a religious party akin to the Sadducees, but they were also sympathetic to the Roman government and its laws. Moreover, they were also supportive of the kingship of the Herods, who reigned in the region. These views were not shared by the Pharisees. Hmm. Pharisees and Herodians, in cahoots with one another. Boy, they must really hate Jesus. Incidentally, Mark's the only one who reports the attitude of Jesus in verse 5 of his account when he says of Jesus, He had looked around at them with anger. The word anger there comes from the Greek word orge. This word is often translated wrath, and it's used like that in John chapter 3, verse 36. Also Romans 1, 18, Ephesians 5, 6, and Colossians 3, 6. And in each of those, it's the term the wrath of God. The wrath of God comes upon hypocrisy. Well, one more thing, there was no Old Testament passage that forbade healing on the Sabbath. The Pharisees actually made that one up. Well, they made up a lot of them. That was just one of many laws that they appended to the Mosaic Law. We see in 
The next section of Scripture, Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 to 21, Mark 3, 7 through 12, and Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, that, that this Jesus movement has really caught on at this point in time. Matthew twelve fifteen, But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. And he warned them not to make him known, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory. And... In his name, Gentiles will trust. Now over to Mark chapter 3, verse 7, same account. But Jesus withdrew his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea, and Jerusalem, and Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon. A great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about to touch him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. Now over to Luke's account, just three verses in Luke chapter 6, beginning with verse 17. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples, and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases, as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits, and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for power went out from him, and he healed them all. After the healing of the man with the withered hand, a great crowd gathers around Jesus, and he heals all of them. We see from the passage in Mark that the crowds that follow are not just Jews, but Gentiles as well, from Tyre and Sidon and Idumea. Matthew cites this reach toward the Gentiles as a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. And then Jesus ordains his apostles in Mark chapter 3, 13 through 19, and Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. First Mark's account, Mark three thirteen. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Then he appointed twelve, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him, and they went into a house. Now over to Luke's account, Luke chapter 6, verse 12. Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve whom he also named apostles, Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. Well, we're well into the second year of Jesus' ministry at this point. 
And it's now time for Jesus to pick out 12 men from among his disciples who become his 12 apostles. The apostles were a subset of his disciples. Any follower of Jesus was a disciple, but the 12 men that Jesus chose from among them from this time forward were to be special messengers of Jesus. The Greek word apostolos means messenger. By the way, Simon the Canaanite, well, he was a full-fledged Jew just like the others. The title Canaanite here is the translation of a Syriac word transliterated to Greek, which was a tag given to those who were members of a particular Jewish political party of the day. Simon was all Jew all the time. So then we have in these two chapters the entire list of the Twelve Apostles. We also find a list of these twelve in Matthew chapter 10, verses 2 through 4. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walton.